Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for the Wilmington, Ohio Church of Christ. We pray that this message will inspire you and help you grow closer to God in your faith. Be sure to stick around after the message to find out more about how you can take your next best step. Enjoy the message. We're looking at some of the promises of God found in the Old Testament. As we study Old Testament uh, stories and narratives and history, we find out more about who God is and uh, what his personality is like, how he wants us to live, and it, all the Old Testament points to Jesus. And, and uh, we're looking at some of our favorite stories from the Old Testament. If you grew up in the church and you grew up going to Sunday school, you heard some of these stories before, um, probably multiple times. They're ingrained into your memory and life but we don't always understand them correctly. And so we need a rehash. We need to go back and and relearn them and look at them from the angle and perspective of the New Testament. And if you did not grow up in the church and you didn't go to Sunday school and and, uh, you don't know a lot about the Bible, some of these stories are gonna be new for you. Some of them, you're gonna say, oh man, I've heard about that before. David and Goliath, for example. Um, Last week I mentioned I had a friend who thought David and Goliath uh, story was just a business metaphor before they found out it was actually a story of a real person in the Bible. Um, today, we are going to look at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. It, they're found um, all throughout the Scripture, but um, the, where they were laid out first is in Exodus chapter 20. So if you want to turn in your Bible, um, the Bible starts, Genesis, uh, that's the first book, and there are There are over 50 chapters, I think it's 75 chapters of the scripture before you get to the list of laws. And so when they, when the Bible talks about the book of law, uh, it's actually a story, a narrative about the people of God. Uh, So it starts off, Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and then we go to Exodus, that's the second book of the Bible, if you're not familiar with it, and you can turn to Exodus chapter 20, we're going to look at that in just a second. I get asked questions a lot of times about um, the Old Testament. And the question usually goes like this, um, how much of the Old Testament applies to us today? And which laws of the Old Testament do we still need to follow? That's kind of the the gist of that question when we talk about the Old Testament, because the Old Testament seems to have a lot more rules to follow. In fact, there were over 600 rules that the the Pharisees and the scribes could write down and say, we got to follow all these rules rules and laws. Then the, the, this is so cool. The Pharisees, they said, well, we don't want to break any of the laws, so we need to figure out uh, ways to keep the laws, so let's make up a whole bunch of more rules to protect us from breaking the rules. And so the oral traditions of the scribes and Pharisees had thousands and thousands and thousands of laws to follow. Doesn't that sound like fun? No, it doesn't. It doesn't sound like fun at all. In fact, it's an impossible way to live. Um, so The question I get asked, which laws of the Old Testament still apply to us? How much of the Old Testament still applies to us? We need to understand, and so I'm gonna give you a brief summation of how to understand laws in the Old Testament. Uh, First, the New Testament mentions the Old Testament and the laws of the Old Testament. When the New Testament mentions the law or the books of law or the law of Moses, most often the New Testament discussion of the law, is talking about the entire Old Testament, the entire Word of God. So if you see the Word of God or scriptures or law in the New Testament, unless the context tells you otherwise, it's talking about the entire Old Testament, all 39 books of the Old Testament. That's what that's talking about. 
There are some other instances in the New Testament where you will read, they're talking about the law, they're going to be talking just specifically about the Ten Commandments, or they're going to be talking specifically about only the first five books of the Bible. That's called the Pentateuch. Uh, sometimes they would call that the Torah. Torah means teaching or law. Um, and sometimes when they say Torah, they mean the whole Old Testament. But when Jesus mentioned the Old Testament, he said, the law and the prophets. He's talking about the entire Old Testament. In the end of Luke, he says the law and the prophets and Psalms. He's talking about the entire Old Testament. And he says they all point to him. That's a huge statement. So when you read the New Testament, it says law. Most likely it's talking about the entire Old Testament. But it could be Ten Commandments. It could be uh, the first five books. Or it could be talking about the oral traditions of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus said to them that you have put a burden that nobody can carry and, and you are substituting the law of God for your traditions. That's a very dangerous place to be. Also in the Old Testament, quick overview. This is a quick overview. I'm, I'm, we're moving fast. Books and books have been written about this. I'm, I'm narrowing it down to like two sentences. Um, basically, and it's more complicated this, but basically in the Old Testament, out of all the Old Testament, there are three types of laws. There's a ceremony law, a judicious law, a judicial law, and a moral law. The ceremony laws had to do with the nation of Israel and how they worshiped God. The judicial laws had to do with the nation of Israel as they functioned as an entire nation, as a theocracy under God. And the moral laws are laws that are kind of built into the fabric of the universe that every person is supposed to obey. And I gotta tell you a beautiful thing about Jesus. In Matthew chapter five, he says he doesn't get rid of any of the laws of the Old Testament. He doesn't get rid of any of the Old Testament, but he fulfills the Old Testament. This is an incredible statement. For him to say to the people he was with that he fulfills all of the Old Testament. He says, the entire Old Testament points to me and I complete it. That is staggering. C.S. Lewis says, Jesus either has to be a liar on par with a demon straight from the pit of hell for him to say stuff like this or a crazy person because no person in their right mind would say, all of these things point to me, or he is who he says he is. The God of the universe come to us in flesh. Let me show you and tell you a little bit about how Jesus fulfills the law. Let's start with the ceremony law. The ceremony law had to do with how they worshiped God. It had a high priest, a sacrifice of animals, uh, feast days, and we'll go on and throw prophecies in there. Well, in the scripture, it tells us that the high priest, the, the priest that would kind of oversee these sacrifices, it says that priest was temporary. That priest had faults and sins himself, and that priest was going to die, and he'd have to pass it on to somebody else. Somebody else would have to be priest. And this went on forever and ever and ever until Jesus came, because Jesus is our high priest. The priest in the Old Testament ceremonial law would have to make these sacrifices of animals over and over and over again, but in Jesus, he becomes our sacrifice once for all. The tabernacle, the temple of God, 
Jesus says he's now the new temple. Inside the tabernacle, there was furniture. There was the gate or the door. And Jesus says, no, I'm the door. I'm how you get into the presence of God. There was a a sacrificial altar. And Jesus says, no, the cross is the new altar and it is through me, the new sacrifice, that you're gonna be forgiven. There was a wash basin for them to wash themselves. And Jesus says, no, I'm gonna wash you clean. There was a lamp, and Jesus says, no, no, I'm the light. There's bread, and Jesus says, no, I'm the bread. There is an incense altar that lifts smoke up to the Lord, and Jesus says, no, my prayers always go before the Lord. Jesus even becomes and fulfills the ceremonial furniture of the temple. He's the, he's the priest, he's the sacrifice, he's the temple, he's the furniture. The feast days They had all these feast days that one of them represented walking holy with God. One of them represented being in the presence of God. One of them represented having peace with God. Jesus is all of those. The sacrifices, he's all of those. Jesus fulfills all the ceremonial laws. When Jesus died and rose again on the cross, the ceremonial laws ceased to exist. In fact, God allowed the entire temple structure to be destroyed not too many years after Jesus rose from the dead. Then there's the judicial law. The judicial laws are how the nation of Israel functions as a a nation. When they rejected Jesus and killed him on the cross, the nation of Israel ceased to exist. God no longer deals with them as a nation or a theocracy. Now, there is a new country, Israel, now, with people who claim that they still are associated with the first. But when they got rid of Jesus, when they rejected Jesus and killed him, God ceased functioning in a relationship as the nation of Israel. In fact, he creates a new nation, a new kingdom of God that's made up of Jews and Gentiles, and it's called the church. And this is how he relates to a new people group, a new kingdom of God. And so the judicial laws ceased to exist when the nation of Israel was destroyed. Then there's the moral laws. By the way, Jesus fulfilled the judicial laws too. When he was convicted and condemned for sin, even though he was completely innocent. He fulfilled the penalty of the laws. Jesus fulfilled those laws with his death. Then there's the moral law, the last part. This is the one Jesus fulfilled with his life. He never broke a single moral law of God. This is incredible. Jesus fulfills all the law of the New Testament, all all the laws of the Old Testament. So when we're asked this question, which Old Testament laws are we still under? The answer, listen closely, the answer is we are under none of the Old Testament laws. Jesus fulfilled them all. We are now living under grace. If you want to read about this, you can go to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 says, if you're married to someone and that person dies, you're no longer in a relationship with them and you can now enter into a new marriage. And he's talking about 
You were married to the Old Testament law, but when Jesus died and rose again, you're no longer in the old covenant, you're now in the new covenant. Now here's the catch. Then it says something like, so since we're no longer under law, but now under grace, should we sin? And Paul says, no, don't sin, that's stupid talk, that's not why you're now under grace. When you're under the law, you have to keep a list of laws and you have to struggle to maintain perfection. But when you're under grace, Jesus now indwells within you and instead of writing the laws on tablets of stone, he now writes the law on your heart and you desire to please God. And so the 10 commandments, the moral laws of the Old Testament now become a structure on how to do life, not the source of life. In fact, they were never intended to be the source of life. When God gave the laws to Israel, they had already been saved. He didn't give it to them to be saved by. Think about that. When they were in Egypt, in slavery, God didn't say, follow these laws and I'll rescue you. No, he rescued them, brought them out, and he says, I want to teach you how to be a new nation. I'm going to give you a laws that will build your culture because the only culture you know is Egypt. The only law, the gods you know are the Egyptians' gods. The only life you know is slavery. I'm going to build a new nation. Here's some laws. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, Exodus chapter 19. And these laws are going to be so beautiful. If you keep them, all the other nations, you're going to be witness to the other nations. They're going to be jealous and want what you have. Deuteronomy chapter 4. So the laws are designed as a structure for life to witness to the glory of God and allow us to live in a structure that brings life. But it's not the source of life. It's just a structure. So as far as the moral law goes, we still need to know them. Uh, another way to think about it is, before we get into it, and we're going to read, read the Ten Commandments. Um, if we make the basketball team, we don't have to worry about if we're good enough in, anymore, but that doesn't mean we stop trying to improve. Michael Jordan made the basketball team, but then he was relentless in practicing so he could get better. LeBron James is relentless in practice so he can get better. Kobe Bryant was relentless in practice so he could get better, but they were already on the team. When we're in Christ, the law is within us, and the scripture says we're gonna have a desire to please God, but we don't have to work at trying to have salvation. That's already been approved, but we can grow in our ability to please God, and we use the Ten Commandments to measure our growth. We use the moral law to say, am I continuing to improve? So, which of the, summation, which of the Old Testament laws are we under? None of them. We're now under grace. So, should we sin and get rid of any, anything to do with obedience? No. We should continue to love God in all of our life and try to structure our life in a way that pleases him. And we're going to grow up in the way that has done that. But now it's not a burden anymore. It's not a matter of list keeping. It's a matter of love. When we love God, we want to please him. If you love your spouse, you want to please them. If you love your kids, you want to please them. If your kids love you, they want to please you. It's not a matter of have to, it's a matter of I want to. And that's where we come into now the Ten Commandments. We following along? 
Does anybody want to ask a question real quick? Is this scary talk for somebody? Does it like jar you to know that we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace, and yet we still want to know what obedience to God looks like? That jars some people. It jars some Christian friends of mine who say, no, you got to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, Paul says, if you fail at one of the commandments, it's like you've broken all of them and you are guilty. And if you fail at the commandments because you have to keep the commandments, then you're under a curse because you cannot keep the commandments. When the laws were given, it reveals our sin like a mirror. If we have dirt on our face, we may not be able to tell. But when we have a mirror in front of us, we can say, oh, I'm dirty. And we go to clean ourselves. Well, when we look at the laws of God, the Ten Commandments, just the Ten Commandments, we realize we sin. We have a dirty, rotten soul because we haven't kept the Ten Commandments. And when we read the Ten Commandments, it actually shows us and reveals to us that we can't keep the Ten Commandments So we need to find somebody who can to rescue us, and it points us to Jesus. Also, the laws given, the moral law given, actually restrains sin. When you know the law, it actually restrains sin. These laws should continue to be taught in our nation. I think it was the 1980s when the Supreme Court said, no longer can you put the Ten Commandments in your school. They cannot be hung in your classroom And this is the dissertation from one of the justices because one of the students might read it and then start to obey it. And we wonder, do not murder, do not steal, do not lie. Why would anybody not want people to obey that? But when we read those laws, it also restrains us from committing sin. The law law was good. The law was actually grace, grace to us. So let's look at it. And this uh, guy named Jarvis, he taught his kids how to remember the Ten Commandments using his ten fingers. If you have ten fingers, you can remember the laws this way too. Here's how it works. And do this with me. Do this with me. Uh, number one law. You will have no other gods before me. There is only one God. That's pretty easy, right? One. I'm going to use this hand. One. One God. Second law, no idols. If there's more than one, that's a fake God, also an idol, don't do that. So you have one God, only one, have no other gods before me. If another God shows up, that's like a fake God, like an idol. That's number two, no idols. Number three, the name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Ghost. Do not take their name in vain. Number four, if you look at my thumb, it's just resting here on my palm. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. This will be a day of rest, okay? Resting. Five, I promise to honor my parents. We have a little honor system here. Fully handed, all five fingers. Six, do not murder. (laughs) Seven, Two people, keep your marriage vows holy. Do not commit adultery. Three, like prison bars, don't steal. Four, uh, excuse me, number nine. 
Notice my thumb is hiding like I told a lie and don't want anybody to find out about it. Don't lie. See, that thumb is hidden. Don't lie. Number five, give me, give me, give me. Do not covet. Do not covet. That's how we can remember the Ten Commandments, using our ten fingers. Let's read through the Ten Commandments and figure out how this is a structure for life, but not the source of life. And how maybe um, if we read the Ten Commandments and know the Ten Commandments, we can actually grow in, in our ability to show and reveal the love of God, to reveal how great he is. You know, in Exodus chapter 19, God says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. And in Deuteronomy chapter four, he says, I want you to keep these laws so other nations will see how awesome these laws are, to know how wise your God is, to draw them in because they want what you have. And Israel, the story of Israel is story after story after story where they failed to live up to the standard God set and they failed to love him worthy. You know, in Romans chapter 11, it says the Jewish people are not in the kingdom of heaven, but the Gentiles have been let in so that Jewish people would be jealous and want what we have. We're still supposed to be a kingdom of priests. We're still supposed to be a light to the world. We're still supposed to draw people in. When we live this structure, giving honor to God and loving other people, people want that. And in Romans 11, it says some of the Jewish people will be able to come back into the family of God because they see. Do your good deeds in front of others so that people will give the glory to God. Number one, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. These laws are based in God. They're based with an authority. The scripture is God's words to us. It is our authority. These words were spoken by God to the people. He wrote these words with his own finger on a tablet of stone. And now in the new life, when we are in Christ, he writes them on our heart. He is God. And he says, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Because he's the authority. He's the creator. This is a structure for life. If you live where you love God more than you love anything else, you're actually going to live a pretty good life. There's a guy named Philip Ryken who has this test, a two-part test to determine whether you are putting any other gods up there with God. He says the two-part test goes like this. What do you love and what do you trust? In this world, there are three areas, three main areas Satan tempts us all the time. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 and 16, it says, we have to watch out for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We want to feel, we want stuff, and we want people to think highly of us. Which one of those do you struggle with and are most tempted to fall to? Because that's who, what your God is. Or do you love God and you find complete contentment in him? I've been struggling with contentment last night. I, I get, we, we really can be totally satisfied in Jesus. He really can totally sustain us. We have to turn to him. 
We have to fix our eyes on him. And then the second question, what do you trust? Do you trust in your own wisdom and ingenuity to get you out of problems, to help you? Do you trust in your investments? Do you say stuff like, if I got paid a little bit more, then I'll become more generous? Well, your, your God is your investments or your wealth or your health or your youth. What do you trust? Or do you trust in the Lord alone? These are two tests that we can focus on with that first commandment. I am the Lord your God. <laughs> he says, I am, I am your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Number two, you shall have no other gods before me. No idols. We gotta be careful that we don't put something up there that we love more than God or that we make an idol if you bow down or pray to a statue or a picture, you have broken commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands." If you bow down and pray to a statue or picture, God says, it's like you hate him. On the contrary, Jesus says, if you love me, you're gonna obey me. Idol, our hearts are an idol factory. It is so easy to allow the pleasures of this life to become our main focus. It's all we think about. That is an idol, who day? <laughs> uh, just, I just stepped on somebody's toes. What did we spend yesterday doing? We prepared ourselves for the worship with other Christians in the Lord. Spent all day in prayer preparing for today so we could gather together. Or... Did we spend all day preparing snacks like this guy? What's our idol? So dangerous. And it doesn't have to be like a physical bow down for it to become an idol. But it is where we spend our money. It is where we spend our time. And it is what we spend thinking about. Doesn't these Ten Commandments already reveal that we need the rescue and we can't keep them and we're dirty? It is a way to live. Isn't it so good that Jesus fulfilled these laws for us? And when he comes and lives inside of us, he fulfills the law inside of us too. When God looks at us, he sees the fulfillment of the law in Christ and he says, oh, you're in Christ. There is no condemnation for you. I see that Jesus has fulfilled it, so you're in him, you're connected to him, you're also connected to his righteousness. You're in him, you're connected to his perfection. And that grace and that love and that mercy given to us motivates us to say, oh yeah, now I wanna do it. Not because I have to, but because of the mercy that you've given me, the grace that you just pour over me, the Jesus who loved me and died for me. We're motivated by love and we're empowered by the spirit, but these are still good. Number three, 
You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This had to do um, with, uh, it, can, it can be uh, blasphemy like we do it when we just use his name flippantly. But it also had to do with like if, if I make a false oath using the Lord's name. It could also uh, be if I use his name in sorcery. Like we read in Acts, I think it's chapter seven, that the seven sons of Sceva saw how the name of Jesus drove out demons. So they said, hey, that's a good magic trick. I'll just say the right words and I'll use the right name and the name of Jesus. And this demon said, well, I know who Paul is and I know who Jesus is, but I don't know you. And he, that demon beat them up because they were using the Lord's name as a magic sorcery. Don't use, misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We're gonna come back to this one. This is the only law out of the 10 that's not repeated in the New Testament. And I think there's a reason for this. I think the reason why the Sabbath rule is right in the middle of this list in between how to love God and how to love people is to point us to Jesus. We're gonna come back to the Sabbath law. We're gonna end with the Sabbath law. Come back to that. So the first part, Jesus summed up, with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first four commandments. First three, if we move Sabbath to the end of our discussion. Jesus summed up the entire law in two parts, and then later in Scripture, it's summed up in one. Love the Lord your God with all your strength, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You can sum it down to one word, love. If you are motivated by love, you will keep the law of God and you will grow in obedience and the structure of your life will be built around what God says. The first three, the first four are love God. The next six are love people, love your neighbor. And wouldn't this be great if we structured our life around love your neighbor Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land your Lord, your God, has given you. You know, God knows what it takes to have a successful community and a successful culture. If you get rid of the family, your culture and your success of the environment where you raise children and how you interact with each other goes down the toilet. So God builds in the moral law, have respect for your parents. Parents, you're gonna teach your children how to have respect. But it's also an idea of mother and father. You need two parents to make a family. You need a mom and a dad. And this is the healthiest way to live. God is building all of this into the moral law. He's building it into the fabric of society. If you get rid of dad or mom, the family suffers, the culture suffers. If the dad and mom are not there, there this is a cl a clear evidence from years and years and years. 80 to 90% of all those incarcerated come from a single home family. God built it into the system. 
He knows what is going to bring life. So parents, you teach your children, your young children, how to be respectful of all adults, including parents. And children who are now adults, our job is to take care of our aging parents. This is part of the fabric of society. You get rid of this. You might have heard in the news, there are some organizations that want to get rid of the the nuclear family. And they say it's a white Western idea. It's not. It's from the Middle East, built into the word of God. There's a reason why God made this. It's so society can function in a healthy way. Honor your parents and your mother. Honor your father and mother. That's love. You want to raise your kids up to be successful? They need to know how to respect adults because it actually plays over in respect for life, how to function. You shall not murder. Okay, protect life. That makes sense. This is not warfare when you protect your nation. This is not self-defense when you have to protect yourself or somebody else. This is not the death penalty, which is a punishment by law for someone who has broken the law. This is do not murder. Jesus says this comes from down deep in the heart. We have this anger problem that is sinful within us where we want someone to be hurt. This isn't, you get it, I think. You should not commit adultery, so love your spouse. In Satan's biggest ploy to break down, it's not the biggest ploy. One of his ploys to break down society is to have sex outside of marriage, and then when you get married, you don't have sex. Or you bring sex from outside into your marriage. That's adultery. And God says, don't do that. It will destroy your relationship with God and with others. So he builds it into the fabric of society. We're not gonna break those relationships especially since he formed it in the Garden of Eden, said this is man should not be alone. He should have a wife. This is why they're gonna separate. He formed marriage from the very beginning as a part of fabric of society. That doesn't mean if you're not married that you're a lesser person. You can have fulfillment in Christ as a single person. Jesus was single. Paul was single. Um, (laughs) This is a way to live, a very valid way. Jesus said if you can live that way, you should do it. But not everybody can live that way, so you're allowed to be married but it's in the scripture, but don't break that vow because it destroys relationship. It's not loving. Love your neighbor as you would love yourself. The way we treat ourselves is pretty high. If everyone would just love each other like we love ourselves, wouldn't the love of our culture and community go up? Wouldn't we be taking care of other people? That's how we're supposed to function as a church. And as we do that, people outside the church say, oh man, they are loving. Their God is great. I want what they have. Don't steal. That's easy, right? Can't you see where this is built into this law that there is a such thing as ownership and there is such things as breaking the trust of things that you own? Ownership is a real thing. Sharing is a real thing. But they are two separate things. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. This could be changed positively to tell the truth. Now, 
if you tell some of the truth, but you leave out some so you mislead someone, that's still a lie. But if you tell some truth, but not everything you know about the situation, but not to mislead, just to protect, that's still telling the truth. But if you're in a court, which is kind of what this is referring to, and you mislead so that somebody else gets in trouble or you gain, that's false testimony. Don't do that. Don't lie. Tell the truth. If you tell some of the truth to mislead, that's a lie. But if you tell some of the truth to protect or you don't answer, like, do I look fat in this dress? I think that is on the love side. Just something to think about. Do not give false testimony. Haven't you ever been lied to and broke your heart and it's so hard to regain that trust? It's unloving to lie. Treat people how you want to be treated. That's the second half. That's what these 10 go with. You shall not covet, number 10, your neighbor's house. Not, should not cover your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Be satisfied with what you have. If you're satisfied with what you have, then if you see somebody that has something different or more, you can be happy that God blessed them. The covetousness is this idea that I want what they have so bad that I want their blessing even if it means they don't get the blessing. I want their blessing, I'll do anything to get it. This is where uh, vandalism comes into play. I don't have so I'm gonna destroy what you have? Wouldn't it be nice if we just taught this to everybody? But even if we teach it, unless they know God, unless they're in Christ, they won't follow it. And if we don't know Jesus, we're not gonna follow it either. It is a better way. It is a structure for life. It's not the source of life. But it is the way of living on earth as a human, right here, 10 commandments. What would happen if we did these, just nine of the ones I mentioned? That'd be pretty cool. Let's talk about the Sabbath real quick as we end here, as we end here. The Israelites only knew slavery. They only knew working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they get out of slavery and they form their own nation. And God says, I want you to trust me. They form an agricultural society. What happens if you don't plant seed, water seed, or harvest for one day a week? Well, what could, there's lots of bad things could happen. But God says, no, on that day, you're just going to trust me that I'm going to take care of everything. This points to a trust that we have in the Lord. In the New Testament, this is not repeated because I think the Sabbath day, out of all the laws here, actually point us to Jesus. In Colossians chapter two, Paul says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The temple was a symbol that points to Jesus. The furniture in the temple is a symbol that points to Jesus. The lamp, the bread, the altar of incense, it all points to Jesus. The sacrifice points to Jesus. The Sabbath day points to Jesus. 
It is a symbol that once Jesus arrives, he is our rest. Matthew 28, I'm sorry, verse 11, verse, chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Hebrews chapter three and four says Joshua, when he led the Israelites into the promised land, he said they could not enter into his rest because they didn't have faith. They had the Sabbath day. Why couldn't they enter into rest? They had no faith. But you have faith, so you can now enter into the rest that was promised. Who do we have faith in? We have faith in Jesus. He gives us rest. If you are in Jesus and he is in you, he's already kept all the laws for you. That is rest. If you are in Jesus and he is in you, your salvation is secure. That is rest. We don't have to work for it. We get to enter into the rest of Jesus today and every day. We don't have to wait for Saturday. And please, please, please don't make the mistake that I grew up under, that Sunday is the new Sabbath day. Everybody I've met that has moved the Sabbath day regulations to Sunday, by the way, none of the regulations on the Sabbath had anything to do with gathering and worship. But those Christians who have moved the Sabbath day rule to Sunday end up making a bunch of laws about what you can and cannot do on Sunday, just like the Pharisees and the scribal traditions that Jesus fought against. Sunday is not the Sabbath day. Saturday is the Sabbath day. And if you want to be under the law and keep the Sabbath, if you fail at keeping the Sabbath, you're going to be under a curse like you've broken all the law. I would rather enter into the rest Jesus offers me with the peace for my soul and the ability to know that he has fulfilled all the laws in my place so that I can love God. That gives me rest. Does that mean I don't need to take a day off? No, taking a day off is healthy. Does that mean I can't set aside a day for the Lord? No, set aside a day for the Lord. That's beautiful. In fact, Paul says, some people set aside one day for the Lord and some people set aside every day for the Lord. Either way, do what, it, do what you are committed to because it gives honor to God. But don't make it the law. And don't move it because Jesus rose on Sunday and we worship on Sunday. No, enter into his rest. He fulfills the symbol. Thanks again for joining us. If you need someone to pray with you, talk to, or maybe you just need more information about our church, please visit us online at wcconline.org connect. Fill out that connect card so we can reach out and help you take your next best step. Thanks again for joining, and we will see you back here next time.